Welcome to season six of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer, and I've worked in the animal healthcare industry. And prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. Yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. Speaking of directions, in each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a guest so they can share their own different directions and journeys. What we're doing is exploring veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. One last thing. Thank you, Zoetis. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support the veterinary profession. Today, we get to sit down with Elizabeth Martinez Podolsky, who is the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine, and currently working on her PhD in Higher Education Administration at Iowa State University. She has lots to chat with us about, so I'm very glad our listeners are here with us today. Thank you for making the time to come on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Well, first, let's explain what you do in your role as Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at a vet school, because I think oftentimes we may think of that position as like at a corporate entity or or a business, but maybe not at a vet school. (laughs) Well, I think all areas of industries and academia definitely need something in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, I was really excited to jump at a chance to work um, and intersect uh, some of the things that I love um, with this work as well. And so uh, prior to my position at the College of Veterinary Medicine, I guess what kind of gave me an open door into this world um, was in in agriculture and working at a college of agriculture. And so um, when I saw an opportunity to kind of uh, learn some additional things and how to um, to connect, you know, animals, people, and environment, I thought this was a good opportunity to do so. So it's been an exciting new adventure. I think in many ways, the leadership had some good forethought to think about a position like this and and to create a position like this. Um, And so far, the college has been incredibly positively receptive to it. So it's been um, the best case scenario for any director of diversity to step into. And what are some of the things that you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. (laughs) Um, Everything. (laughs) It's a little (laughs) bit of everything. Um, It's been exciting, first of all, to discover a new part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. A lot of people don't really think about this, but in a weird way, I I think that med has a unique opportunity uh, to kind of lead the conversation. Um, And so... Uh, there's many conversations in diversity, equity, inclusion that are happening in, in relation to decolonization of sciences and uh, finding the connection and in the interdisciplinary ways that DEI um, works uh, in academia. And in a weird way, VetMed's already doing it. And so it's been a cool place to kind of be woke in a new perspective uh, to understand that this work is deeply connected to many other areas of science. Um, and could be leading the conversation. So I, I, from day to day, I'm, you know, in, I've spent the first year, I'm about to just finish my first year here in late May in, in this role as the first person uh, in this role. So kind of defining the work has been part of my mission. You know, as I, I speak to people, I, I begin to learn that 
folks kind of believe this position is more, um, you know, you do it all and you, 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 you celebrate diversity and you educate others, but there is a lot of historical statistical data that we can work with now that allows people to understand that there's a science to this work, that there's uh, onus on the university to understand that we have a lot of reparation and reconciliation to do this work correctly. So historical statistical data that tells us how we've been disenfranchising certain populations of people in the work. Um, and how those have led to medical disparities and other things that have social impacts. So there is a science to this work. And so in a weird way, I'm kind of helping the college understand that too, that not only are we working to include and be more equitable in our processes, but it's important to also understand that there's a unique opportunity for scholarship, research, innovation, and even collaboration with um, corporate entities and beyond. Um, We could be doing a lot of really um, amazing work. So it's a little bit of, of everything and everything. Do you, and, and I want to unpack this a little bit more because why is it important for your position to exist in a vet school specifically? Yeah. Um, because I, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, to help researchers, clinical practitioners, um, and, you know, to, for people to understand that there are many intersections, um, within the work and within, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I think for many, for a long time, you know, we've seen this, how that med has now become largely, uh, populated with women scientists and women, uh, clinicians and practitioners. And so we've seen that VADMED has the capability to change um, and has the capability to adapt to new leadership and new ways of doing things. And I think women have also opened the door for new uh, opportunities for diversity, equity, and inclusion for other researchers uh, to come along, to be able to add to the body of knowledge, to be able to introduce new ideas and help us plan for the future so that we are a sustainable field. So I think in many ways, this kind of opens up the door and provides people the language and the confidence to be able to say, we're ready for this next chapter. You mentioned women opening the doors in vet med. How do you think that's happened? I think with the support of mentorship, um, I think that's a very uh, important part of the process. Um, But also women having the ability to chart new paths for themselves, maybe choosing to do things differently because they know what it's like to not uh, be able to navigate the system the way it's always been, right? And so I I think it takes an amount of courage, but also an an, an ability of challenge of support from a good mentor, from a good network of support, other researchers in, in community. And I think that's the value of diversity, equity, inclusion, right? It provides those things, uh, a community and a network of support and, and that mentorship to be able to have the courage to say, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. You were the director of multicultural student success at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Iowa State University for six years prior to taking this new position. So it was an established position. Had the director position at Minnesota always existed or was it a newly created position? It was a newly created position, which was why it was also uh, a new opportunity for me. Um, Though on paper, it might kind of look horizontal. I think what changed it for me in connecting with the leadership at Minnesota was uh, the dean was coming into her own position and that excited me to see and to hear about the exciting things that she was anticipating for this next chapter of veterinary medicine at Minnesota, the faculty and the staff that I connected with and the students that had so much passion 
to say this is more than overdue. They're always teaching us to do things the right way and to, to notice that enthusiasm. And weirdly enough, before that, working with pre-vet students and knowing that they have such a desire to go into these fields and seeing students who you wouldn't traditionally think would consider veterinary medicine know that this is where they want to be made me think, well, what's going on over there? You know, um, what what exactly are they um, seeing that I haven't seen yet? And so their excitement coupled with the opportunities to get to know about some of the exciting work that was happening in Minnesota um, is what really enticed me to, to consider uh, doing this work here too. And being the first to kind of just set the structure. So in many ways, I, I think I traditionally come off as boring when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm not the most exciting or like, um, you know, we, we went through, we just went through a second civil rights movement in the Twin Cities, right? We literally have been in such a place of public discourse and communal grief, even when I first got to Minnesota. And so um, there was a lot of momentum happening. And as much as I wanted to be part of helping push that momentum, I, you know, I come from the belief of it's important to take a step back and think about the work sustainably. And so for me, it was um, thinking about the generations after me, right? Helping create the, the foundation and the structure, knowing that I hopefully will not be the last person um, to do this work and to continue the work um, in a transformative way, at least to build it. So that's what I mean by being boring. I know people don't often, they, they see the momentum, they don't necessarily see what's going on behind the scenes, the conversations that you have to have, the times where I have to have the courage to say, no, we can't do that that way anymore. And we have to find a new way to do this work. Or we have to find a new way to open doors for people that we've historically left out of the conversation. So that's tough work. It's a little unsexy, <laughs> I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's what I signed up for. And I'm really glad to be able to do it here. You brought up some interesting points because Minnesota has been thrown in the spotlight in recent years, and it's been a hyperheated environment. You know, when you came into this position, did you have to adjust your initiatives because of the heated landscape? And, and I know you you wrote, you co-authored a paper, um, you know, called Our College Community's Response to Challenges Following the Death of George Floyd. And I, I was just curious, like, in that heated environment, did you just look at it and go, we have to do things differently. Yeah. And in, in many ways, actually, I had to humanize the situation. It's, you know, many people expected me to roll up my sleeves and get right to work. But um, the first piece of doing this work right is acknowledging the pain and acknowledging that there was a whole community in grief and in frustration and in shock. And that was an important piece to starting off on the right foot. And part of that was also humanizing the fact that I don't know what it's like to be in a Black body in the Twin Cities. And I don't know what it's like to have that generational trauma and living through that, right? And so trying to help a community know that it's okay to feel their feelings and then encourage them and empower them to say, now what? That was kind of the first part of my approach and then it was building that community because I can't do this work alone. <laughs> I am the right. only official person with a diversity title, but I hope not to be, you know, I want us to understand that there's many facets to the work and there should be multiple people who are helping and providing some, you know, whether it's a diversity community of practice or whether it's a coalition 
where people are able to be cooperative and share resources and feedback and redirection, but that we that we can build um, a community to be able to do this work right because I can't do it alone. So yeah, in, in a weird way, I had to kind of reshift my approach um, and look at and acknowledge the humanity behind the situation I was stepping into and then kind of regenerate some of that energy to see what, what do we do next. Are you finding that people overall are like, yes, me, and like raising their hand and willing to help you? Or are you, are you surprised that you know this work has to be done, but you're not um, having the support to help it get done. I have actually been super excited to meet several people who are like, what do we get started? How can we do this? Um, and it's been it's been such an amazing place to to discover that. Maybe I had some preconceived notions about working in vet med. Maybe it was working in agriculture with variety different types of people. I, I don't know what kind of clouded me on that, but to hear the the excitement and the way people wanted to come into this work, and I had to remind folks that there's room for everyone, right? From the novice, from the person who's just learning and trying to figure out the language to articulate what they see, feel, observe, right? Uh, to the person who's been doing this forever, um, to the activist, right, uh, to the scholar, like everybody has a role. And that's been part of me uh, also, it, part of this role, trying to help people understand that everyone has a role to play. It's totally okay if you're not one of the people marching out in the streets. Those people are incredibly necessary to this, um, as we say in Spanish, batalla or battle, right? But we also need people um, to be doing this work from in other areas and to utilize the strengths that they have, the privileges that they have to help move this charge forward. So we uh, have a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, which has been such an amazing, supportive environment um, of folks who are faculty, staff, and students who are helping make this happen um, at our college. Uh, we also have Veterinary Anti-Racist Coalition for Action group, which is a group committed to the professional development piece, but also a place to unpack some of their learning. And then we've also had uh, student activism, which has been such a driving force to really get us to see beyond institution, right? Like there's real life happening and there's real um, things we need to consider to be able to reduce the barriers for students to, uh, to come into vet med for new populations of people to consider looking at us. And I'm curious because I think Minnesota, as, as we've acknowledged here, was an epicenter of these heated discussions mm -hmm. about diversity. It sounds like you could just you couldn't just adopt a cookie cutter approach, right? Like in other words, like um would a vet school like UC Davis need to do what you're doing and why or why not? First of all, thanks for acknowledging that cuz yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that you can see that and it, it it, it does have to be different. And honestly, we are different, right? There are like the Purdue's diversity is different, right? And Cornell's is different. And rightfully so. I think we are attracting uh, unique talent at Minnesota. We have some sustainable programs, such as our community medicine program, which is doing incredible work with our indigenous communities and our traveling clinics. You know, things that are very unique to Minnesota that we need to maintain. So part of my role is making sure that we are also thinking about ethical research guidelines, that we are thinking about making sure we create some sort of a historical legacy so that when we do interact, when the next generation of scholars interacts with these communities, we have our history to tell because they never forget us and their interactions with us. Or 
anybody else from the University of Minnesota, even if they aren't us, right? They kind of put us together in the same place, right? So those kinds of things need to also be established and are very unique to Minnesota because those programs came from uh, scholars and clinicians, uh, you know, such as the late Dr. Minakuchi, who helped create some of those programs to help us understand our role in acknowledging treaties and acknowledging our partnerships with indigenous communities. And I would hope that other universities have those similar viewpoints when it comes to doing this work and within their outreach. But I, I acknowledge that there are different populations of people in different states. And so some of the diversity initiatives may look a little different. And, um, and also the work, right? So, you know, if you're if your program is focusing on teaching and learning, then pedagogical DEI help is probably most necessary or priority. So again, it's really assessing what are the needs and, and allowing the director of diversity to have the tools to be able to meet those needs. It's interesting. You sit in a very unique seat because you represent the vet school at university DEI spaces, such as the Medical Social Justice Group and a DEI Leaders Collective. I mean, we are far from solving this problem. So I'm curious, what do you see that the rest of the world needs to see? I think I see that we are ready for the next phase of veterinary medicine, whatever that is. Something tells me, you know, the world of uh, global health and one health uh, kind of, it, it feels like in the right spirit to me every time I interact with scholars in that area. So something along the lines of, of the intersections between people, animals, and humans is so important. And again, has already been happening. These conversations have been happening in vet med. But I think the world needs to know that, you know, the world needs to know that that there are scholars and people working with communities to identify where those needs are that are giving us answers for things like a pandemic that are researching and being on the on the cusp of cutting edge vaccine creation and things like that. And I was talking to folks in that med and I was like, my goodness, we're in a pandemic. And we had an awesome opportunity to lead the conversation. <laughs> and I hope that people recognize that we still do and we shouldn't miss our chance to tell the world that there's so much exciting things going on in vet med. I think that's what I see. And frankly, what kind of keeps me here and, you know, I, I, I lived um, through my own personal experience. I've, I've studied diversity from an academic place and a scholarship place, and I now work in it. And I am... And I was somewhat surprised to learn that I had more learning to do when I came to vet med. I think we it's time for us to take up the space that we we deserve. I agree. That's very well said. I find your PhD fascinating because if I understand correctly, your research areas include agriculture, STEM, and Latinx students. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you came up with that combination of study because someone may not automatically like string those three topics together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That came from hearing students speak and share their stories with me, to be honest. They are already, you know, I would, I would encounter corporate partners and things like that who had a lot of misconceptions about uh, particularly Latinx students, right? Oh, you know, they might've worked in the labor force and that's how they got to Iowa or, you know, their families um, were migrant farm workers. And that's part of the story, right? But a lot of these students didn't end up in agriculture and as pre-vet students by accident. 
It's not a fad for them. It's something they've thought through. It's something that they've taken the time to share with me. Like, you know, I've, I know the soil was living before I took an agronomy course because it's something that my grandma shares with me. Right. And so they were in their own place of decolonizing the sciences and telling me how they got their professional development through their community and not necessarily through their education. I want people to know, whether it's corporate folks, um, academic folks, to, to know that this group of students not only provides a unique bridge to this community, because many of them have already done the work, seen the work, but they also provide unique solutions. They also provide unique perspectives and new directions to in the scholarship. So it's not just them going to work on a farm. They pay attention to how long somebody has been standing at a machine. They pay attention to safety and if it's um, translated in different languages. They pay attention to who are the people who are involved in the process, the many stakeholders. And more importantly, they find a respect for the animal that they're working with and they provide, you know, new insight to why that's important. And so them teaching me agriculture through their lens was what motivated me to look through my own story. You know, I have a long story of agriculture having grown up in the Southwest and not and being denied my history, right? And so hearing them speak about their connections helped me decolonize my own story and recognize how deeply rooted I am to this country, to my indigenous connection to the land, to this work, and more importantly, to science. Yeah, that's how they, they make the connections. I'm excited to just qualitatively tell their story in the most ethical and hopefully humane way. How do you feel that you were denied your history? Well, I grew up in Texas public schools and I, you know, I love my, I love my home and um, it's a big part of me, uh, but I recognize that there was a lot of pieces of my history that didn't necessarily make sense. And so looking at it from a new historical lens and reading uh, Latinx, I, I know this could be contentious for some folks, but critical race theory, right? Basically an, another viewpoint to history, another story, right? In the same time period to read about the hidden figures, the many contributions to agriculture, to kind of uh, relook at cowboy boots and rodeo from a Mexican perspective. To remember when I was living in Iowa that I was surrounded by corn, something that is very indigenous and such a big part of my, my diet and how I learn about life, right? So to relook at those things from a new perspective reminds me, whoa, there was so much that I wasn't able to learn from my, from my public school education. And I, and, and, and I hope that I can um, help students remember that, though they're in their own process of remembering too, right? And sharing those stories. So it's been a, as a higher education student, it's a really unique place to really relearn your own histories and it's healing. It's coming back home. Did you have any experiences in your earlier years that influenced you to devote your life to DEI? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I'm. I grew up in a Spanish-speaking home. I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, which is a large agricultural area in South Texas. Most people in the United States, your citrus might come from there or Florida. <laughs> I think, like going back home a few weeks ago, my mother recently had surgery, and I went home to see her. And for the first time, I saw billboards with Latina mayoral candidates. And I don't know why, but that struck me because I've never seen that in my life. And so I knew things are going in a new direction. 
And that excited me. There are times where, you know, I, I think back to how I grew up and in a weird way, there's some moments where I'm like, man, I really don't wish this upon anyone. But then there are other times where I'm like, I'm really glad that I was able to persevere through this because it taught me something that I know some other people don't necessarily see just yet. So, um, yeah, I'm a first generation student. I navigated college by myself, right? And, you know, all the other identities that helped me see the world through a different set of lenses from being Chicana, from having a, a Jewish background, which some people don't know about, you know, from being left-handed. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? <laughs> so I, I think there was a lot um, of small injustices and things that I felt that I wish I could do more about um, that I experienced and witnessed growing up in a border area that really give me the energy to continue to do this work today. And it's weird because I've moved to a new border area in Minnesota. So to hear the conversations about borders from a new perspective, it's like, wow, <laughs> it's very interesting. And it's, um, it's strange. And it's, and it's good. It's a, it's a new way to hear about borders, as I've often been a person who has to cross borders, um, literally and figuratively. You had mentioned that you learned a lot through these experiences. Can you share with us some of the things that, that you've taken away from your life's journey so far? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I'm a, again, I'm, my background's in education. And so I think about the times where there's a lot of historical places in Texas history where uh, that have a large influence to how even things are today. There was for a long time anti- Spanish-speaking sentiments in the Southwest. And as I discover and talk more to my cousins here, the Anishinaabe people in Minnesota, to hear their stories about boarding schools and the violence inflicted upon those communities, to hear some similar and parallel sentiments in, in the public education system, it makes me sad because it realized that the systems were perpetuated in a new way. And so I think about things like that and people like Barbara Jordan, who had no business advocating for Latinx people, but chose to and say, that's not okay. Students should be able to come as their whole selves in public education. So recognizing that there are some alliances with other communities, African-Americans, indigenous peoples, right, and many other communities in the Southwest. So that's just part, you know, of, of the, you know, the places where I think the, where I grew up and understanding what it meant to be Chicana uh, in Texas and South Texas, to be of a Spanish speaking family, to be growing up near the border and trying to navigate higher education and now still navigating higher education as a professional and helping, trying to help people see things from a new perspective and hopefully to do it for the right reasons, that it's time for us to, to change and to open new doors for the right reasons. Yeah. And it sounds like you are the one doing it or yeah. you're leading the charge to do it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. It's very exciting. Well, we actually have to stop here, but it's been very enlightening to hear your stories and your perspective and what you're working on. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with us. Thank you. I appreciate being here and excited about what could come next. This wraps up another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. And don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. I'm Dr. Kim Farina. I'll meet you back here next time. This is Scrub Chat.